0: I'm Karl Coleman.
1: I am Kevin Johnson.
2: I'm Cassidy Hall, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash Encountering Silence that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too noisy world.
1: Sometimes to encounter silence, we must travel outside the recording studio to hear its rhythms and participate with it. When we do, we bring our basic recording devices. To keep a record of that engagement, resulting in field recordings. These recordings all may vary in participants and content, surprising us in the variety of ways that silence speaks. This week, Cassidy Hall attended the gathering commemorating 50 years since the death of Thomas Merton at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. While there, she reconnected with writer, poet, and encountering silence guest from episode 32, Brother Paul Quenin, where they fell back into their easy rhythm of words filled with silence.
2: So I'm just going to tell people that we are here at Catholic Theological Union, um, where we are here for the Commemorative events of uh, Thomas Merton's death 50 years ago on Monday the 10th of December
0: yeah.
2: So brother Paul Quinn is back with us uh, To just kind of chat and we'll get an update
0: Well, you know, we uh, started doing uh, December the 10th events at the monastery Okay Ten years after he died That was just a little Merton group that we had Mostly outside people outside of the monastery uh, Did you lead that? I, um, yeah, okay. at that time we decided to have a mass for, for Thomas Merton. And uh, Richard Sisto, uh, Dick Sisto, known professionally, as the, he's a jazz musician, he was friends with Merton. I mean, he I met Dick on the day of my solemn vows mm. in, in 1968, and um, he seemed like a pretty cool guy. He'd been living in California, and he... Um, uh, was uh, a musician, played drums and uh, vibes, vibro-harps. Ten years later, he came back. Uh, I didn't recognize him right away. He just wanted to talk to a young monk. I went out to see him. Uh, the guest master said, why don't you come over and talk to this guy? And we got, you know, one thing led to another. He said, I, I, you know, I came here a good while ago, and I met I, Merton. I, I knew Merton. Mm-hmm. I said... Are you that guy that I met? That <laughs> <laughs> was him. Yeah. So we we we've we've made lifetime friends since then. Yeah. And um,
2: I saw you guys work together at the the Bellerman event. The Bellerman, yeah, that's the Tom right. Thomas event a few months ago, I think it was in October. It was
0: October. Yeah. I read poetry, and he backed me up with piano mm-hmm. and talking drums and a thumb, pia- uh, thumb piano. Thumb That's the, right. Little that, gourd thing. That
2: was so cool. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we, we practiced seven hours to get that wow. right. Yeah. It, it went very well, I thought. When we actually Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But it takes work to do it. But, but he's really really professional, and he tells his students, you don't like repeating things, you're in the wrong profession.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, so what happened was that uh, we decided to have a, a commemorative event, he got his friend Vernon Robertson to say the mass, and uh, Vernon was the. He was there the day I met Richard too. He had come down with Vernon, okay. And so Vernon knew me. I knew Vernon. We got him to do the mass, and uh, Richard played some music. His wife read uh, did one of the readings. I think she might have read some poetry instead. And I I did a reading and other people involved. It was maybe. <sighs> I'd say uh, twenty people there, in the guest chapel, mm-hmm. and I had put a bowl on the altar with a flame in it. I just thought for it it'd be a nice effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the priest, it was a ceramic bowl, so I had put oil in there and a wick and lit it up. It's everything seemed to want be wonderfully uh, proceeding, and as the priest uh, was at the preface. And then you go right from there into the, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the bowl exploded, (gasps) in fragments (gasps) all over the altar. This
2: (laughs) is the commemorative mass for Thomas Merton. Yeah,
0: for Thomas Merton. What
2: year was this? That was
0: 1978.
2: Oh my gosh.
0: So. And, and there's nothing left but a little flicker on what, the altar. What
2: perfect timing and, for it to explode!
0: That's exactly what Vernon said. <laughs> Father Vernon says, <said>, Perfect timing! <laughs> wow, <laughs> and, and Richard says, Blow it out! <laughs> <laughs> so that it was still lit, but the so, yeah, there's uh, some of the pedestal, was, okay. uh, held some of it. Uh, the wick was still there, and everything else, and, and poor uh, it was. Brother Richard's ceramic bowl. I ruined his bowl. I, you know, what happened was that the as the as the wick got uh, colder, you know, it started burning colder. Okay. That changed the temperature of the bowl, the ceramic. Okay. It exploded. Wow. <laughs> so that was our first Thomas Merton anniversary <laughs> event. And after that, almost every year we would have something or other, it'd be nice. Any, be a nice thing any more
2: explosions?
0: No more explosions. <laughs> uh, I'm not anticipating it. You know, we don't want to repeat ourselves. No. So we, uh, I remember one year, Ron Seitz was, uh, Merton's friend, Ron Seitz, the poet, who taught at Bellarmine. And, uh, you yeah, know, he was, uh, Merton was one of his uh, mentors. So we were kind of all reading passages from Merton to talk about our understanding of Merton. And Ron says, none of you people understand Thomas (laughs) Merton. And in a sense he was right. Uh, In another sense, uh, it was uh, he had his own perspective. I think a lot of people feel that way about Merton. They have had some kind of um, personal connection that very well may have been unlike anybody else's. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think, I call him Father Lewis, uh, or, uh, was, I think that was kind of part of his charism, that he could connect with people in, in a way that uh, would have been unlike anybody else. Mm-hmm. So I, I give Ron, Ron later died a uh, rather young death. So it, now, now we we do something. Except this year, we won't have it because I'm up here in Chicago, rather than at the monastery. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the beautiful things I've found about about his writing is it does. It's it's beyond just him and and the pen by his hand because it does adapt to whoever's reading it in a, in a certain way, and we all come to it from a different lens, of course. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, that uh, adaptability, I think, is uh, very... it's important to understand that. Because uh, I've heard a criticism made that he's too general. He speaks mm-hmm. in broad terms. Mm-hmm. But I would say, yes, that's true he seldom writes about himself. But he is writing out of experience. Mm-hmm. I think he speaks out of experience. Now, in the private journals, of course, he's talking about himself. You know, he's very specific. Mm-hmm. But he was writing for... Um, well, first of all, I think... Um, that I don't know if that was c- conditioned by his temperament, that he tended to talk that way, or whether it was conditioned by the restrictions of publications in the, the, the order, the Trappist order, mm-hmm. the uh, especially early on now, there's hardly any restrictions, but uh, I think if a monk was gonna publish, he didn't write about himself. In fact, when he, when he tried to publish The Sign of Jonah, which is more about, you know, it's very concrete, about monastic characters and events and himself, uh, the Abbot Journal was, was going to uh, block that publication. Mm. He, he was going to refuse it because monks don't write about themselves. Mm. They write about things in general, you know, and that's the way Merton had been writing. But of course, Seven Story Mountain was about himself too. But that was an mm-hmm. autobiography. biography. I, uh, anyhow, but Jacques Maritain, you know, the, the great uh, Thomistic philosopher. Mm-hmm intervened on his behalf with the Abbot General and uh, as a consequence of the publication was allowed.
2: Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
0: now the uh, private journals of course there's a lot of that kind of talk and, and I think Merton's understanding was they would not be published for, general, for the general public. Mm-hmm. I, I think his idea was it would be for scholars you know they'd be made available 20 years after he died that was the a specific, uh, that was that was stated in the will,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but they were really, they became, turned out to be very popular and, and people can relate to the journals better than they can to his writing. Some of them find the journals, you know, their favorite part.
2: Mm-hmm. So what was, I'm curious about your, your book, In Praise of the Useless Life, yeah. um, what was your process to get permission to Oh. To write that, what does that look like now?
0: Well, uh, you know, we're we're, we're not much into uh, doing uh, permissions and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, um, the so, uh, so is there? I was asked to do that book, okay. not by my superior, okay, but by the editor. Okay, that's a good position to be in. Yeah, to be asked to do a book, and you know that it's going to be get published if it's he if he accepts it. Mm-hmm. That John John Sweeney with. Uh, he was at Ave Maria Press at the time. Right. And he already published a, a book of my poems when he was at Paraclete. And then he went to Ave Maria. He wanted another book of poems. And I said, well, it'll take a couple of years, I think. And then he, later on, he came back and said, why don't you do a memoir? Mm. Well, I wasn't sure I wanted to do a memoir. I might have said this in my last interview. I, and then I realized after a few months, well a memoir is not an autobiography. I didn't want to talk about myself that much. Mm-hmm. And I uh, said so memoir I could just write whatever I think would be an interesting memory mm-hmm. and things that people be interested in, things that I'm interested in talking about. And uh, so that's the approach I took. Now the abbot had one qualification. He said, Well, if you're gonna write a book, it should be something you want to write, not that the editor. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I was still very hesitant and, uh, about it even when I started working I just sat down and I said well let's see how this goes mm-hmm. I'll start writing see how, how it comes and it was okay I mean it started coming fairly well and uh, so I just kept it up until, uh, for a year until the book was written it only took a year it's not a very long book um, of course then I found out you have to revise an awful lot Which was a good exercise, and that was the other advantage of that uh, exercise, was that it was a learning experience, because I hadn't really written much narrative uh, prose before. Mm -hmm. Although I did one book called uh, Holy Folly, short and tall tales from the Abbey of Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of uh, a narrative, but they were short episodes that took place at the monastery. Or and with people, who I thought were real characters and interesting characters, and, mm-hmm. you know, mischievous people. <laughs> so, uh, but so, that wasn't serious effort to do good writing. It was just more like keep keeping track of what's going on. But with with the the useless book, it was more. Uh, I mean, I revised and revised and revised and revised to make it. You know. Uh, and it it didn't lose its spontaneity. In fact, I had in, enhanced the spontaneity by revising. So people read and they say, well, it sounds like you. It sounds like a conversation you know, I might have had with you. Mm-hmm. But it took effort to get that effect.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm curious about, so the revision process, because that's something that we came across when I saw you last. You talked about, you had poems written. But you would always say this hasn't been revised yet, or I haven't gone yeah, through this yet. Uh, what does that process look like
0: for you? Well, a lot of times, sometimes it works best if I let the thing sit for a while, mm-hmm. even up to well, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks, or maybe like one poem I did, like 16 years before I went back and wow. made it, the, the, you know, a good poem. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's using uh, a matter of using, well, uh, first of all, reading it out loud. Of course, I always try to do that anyhow, but then you have to redo it. Uh, read it aloud. Does it flow off the tongue? Is, is, it, is it readable? Can you actually say these words mm-hmm. with ease? And uh, it's surprising. It looks good to the eye on the page, but and then you try to put it on the lips. And it's a different effect mm. uh, because you're picking up sounds you don't get otherwise or you know something that's stumbling you, you get stumbling at, at certain points uh, it just doesn't balance out right so that's one thing the other thing is maybe you get a, a more accurate word or you, you've got a word which is serviceable but then you, you hit on an idea, a word that would be much more colorful and, and interesting mm-hmm. And says the same thing or even more, and that that's a, it's, so. It's it sh- a good revision is a surprise to me. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, hey, no, look, uh, something's popping up here.
2: Right. Do you ever find that you'll come back to something, and you can't quite make it work, so you kind of just have to leave it to the oh, the yeah. mystery and right. leave it to the silence. Uh, yeah. Kind of just put it away. It's not something you can make sense of, but. Uh-huh. But you know it meant something when it first came to you. You Uh know, kind of like this isn't for everyone. This was for me.
0: Oh, I'm I'm never. I I never say either or. Okay. When I write, it's something that comes that looks like it would do well to be put into words. Mm -hmm. And of course, words are. It's a common thing, not a not a personal thing. And it is personal. But uh, when when I I don't. I'm not much interested in writing just for my own sake. Mm-hmm. Um, some people do that. That's the only writing they do, actually. And uh, then they publish it, and you can say, well, it would better been better if you just left it for your own sake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But I, um, I do keep, keep in mind, a poem seems to have its own space that it lives in. And it can it can be shared or or go unshared for that matter. Emily Dickinson wrote, you know, what is it, one thousand seven hundred seventy-five poems, with no intention of getting them published. Mm. In fact, she asked her housekeeper to burn them after they after she died. And thanks, thank God for the disobedient housekeeper. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Are you familiar? There's a poem. Or maybe it was a letter from Emily Dickinson, where she, or she had written somewhere about this concept or idea of there's no account of Eve dying in the Bible, so how is she not Eve? Kathleen Norris referenced me to that, and I'm not Gee, sure. I don't
0: remember that. I, okay. I've read her letters, but I, I've only read them once. So I, I think I, it was uh,
2: in a letter. It must have been because I'm sure you've read all the poems. Wasn't that
0: interesting? There's no account of Eve dying. Well, there's no account of Adam dying. I'm
2: sure. Right. Yeah. So, but in this letter, she kind of was expressing, so how am I not Eve? How are women not Eve? It was very interesting. But um, Kathleen Norris wrote a poem uh, as a reflection on that,
0: which was oh, yeah. very, very beautiful. Yeah. Huh. I um, read that. Yeah, it's called A Prayer to Eve. Kathleen, I took Kathleen Norris up to the Hermitage once. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> how was that? She mostly, well, you know, she seems like so. Down to earth.
2: Yeah, oh, yes.
0: Ordinary. And most of the time she talked about the climate in uh, South Dakota. Oh. What horrible <laughs> winters they are. Yeah. <laughs> and she talked about, well, her husband was with her at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a scientist. He uh, seemed like a you know, nice guy, but he was depressive. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's manic depressive, but he had, had to fight depression an awful lot. Mm
2: hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And, of course, that was a burden on her life. And then she, when she wrote about Acidia, mm-hmm. uh he's right there in the background. I think yeah. she's explicit about him, too. Yeah. He died. He, uh, he died before she published that book, I believe. Okay. Or may, maybe she, he died before she started writing it.
2: Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure of the timeline, but she is very explicit about uh, his experience with depression in that book.
0: Yeah.
2: And her own. I mean, you know... Um, it's a beautiful book, I see you and Me. Have, have you?
0: I've read it. Okay, okay. And... Uh, um, but you didn't weep through it like me. It's a monastic <laughs> uh, theme, mm-hmm. which you, you don't hear uh, much about. If, of all the sins, mm-hmm. uh, the capital sins, that's not one that you hear about. But in the monastic context, it was. Because these monks living out in the desert with nothing to do would get bored, and they would get restless. And, mm-hmm. uh, the noonday devil... Would catch them, and they'd go outside the sound, look what's going what are the neighbors doing what's the other monks up to and maybe I should go visit that poor widow down this road <laughs> that's a sedia so uh it's it's kind of uh, it's has now i think that more recently <coughs> received a lot of more attention from writers mm-hmm. and it's kind of a a key to many, to the understanding of many other things. Yeah. In fact, I think the Greek fathers, you know, the, who were who were monks, or they were wannabe monks, a lot of them. Um, and like and of course, Evagrius, who who was a monk and, and, and you know the, the the most important ascetic writer uh, of his age, um, wrote about Exidia and gave it a very prominent position in their frame of, framework of moral theology. Um, I think it's Origen who said that the original sin was satiety—that we all were living in the presence of God in eternity, and we were became satiated with God and fell away from God. So. In a way, you could say that is a form of ascetia.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: In other words, mm-hmm. you, you lose that will towards the good, the will towards God, and then just fall, fall into something else. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll find variations on that theme of the, of the Greek fathers.
2: Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please, take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. So I have a question for you that I don't think we addressed last time. It seems like we live in a day and age in America in particular where people are very loud and vocal and, you know, um, we have protests regularly. We, want to, we both, both want to make our voice heard, but we also want, you know, equality and justice and these kinds of things. And I've always found... There, there's many ways in which people do this. There's many ways in which people seek equality and justice. And all of the, the monks that I've known and come across, um, I see a deep activity in their prayer life and their writing, and I do see it as almost a going away from the world in order to love the world more. Mm-hmm. Um, to someone who doesn't see that, to someone who says, "Well, why would they go yeah. live away from everything and um, just a av- quote unquote they think one is avoiding everything?" Right. Um, what would you say to someone that sees it like that?
0: Well, it, it might depend on the tone. <laughs> they, they, you know, they bring this up with so sure. some some people bring that up with you know as much kindness as they can. Sure. Uh and Father Lewis's response, he, he which he gave to some to a Baptist seminarian, who came with a group of Baptists, Glenn Hansen brought a group, and he said, "Well, I live this life because I believe in prayer. Mm. Well, if you don't believe in prayer, no, it's not going to make sense.
2: Mm.
0: On the other hand, I'm I, I would be tempted, I would be inclined to." Invite the person to try it out themselves, yeah. to get away, to actually spend time in a, a, a quiet, um, remote place and see what effect it has mm-hmm. and what change it makes in your perspective on the world. And do you go away with it with a sense of more selfishness or do you go away from that solitude... With an enhanced appreciation for the world,
2: mm.
0: and uh, you know, so there's no no use arguing the point. But let's let's talk about experience, and you know, try it out yourself and see, you know, whether it amounts to anything. And they they may say, well, yeah, it's nice for temporary times, and of course, most people do get solitary times in their lives, some somehow or other. But I think a lot of times they don't appreciate the solitude that they already have in their life. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I mean, it's not they don't have it, but they don't... Maybe they don't really make use of it to go inward and see what am I as a person? uh, Who am I? Or do do I really know who I am? Or does it matter to me? Um, Am I supposed to know who I am? And see, with questions like that, I mean, they're kind of unusual questions. I think not, I don't always ask myself those questions in such an explicit term, mm-hmm. but I do draw closer to myself and have a better sense of how I am, what way I am in the world. Yeah. How do I be as an individual person? Mm-hmm. and so um, if, you, if you can get a hold of that you know, if you can kind of breathe comfortably with yourself uh, you're going to be breathing more comfortably with other people if you're not comfortable with yourself how are you ever going to be comfortable with other people or if you have to depend on somebody else to be around to be comfortable with yourself well then you're dependent and that's, that's a sorry state of affairs. So how can you help somebody be independent if you're not independent yourself? So this, this in a way, it, 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 you're inevitably connected with, with other people mm-hmm. if you're connected to yourself. And I, I find mm-hmm. a lot of times people say to me, I have no I, expectation of this. They say, well, you know, when I'm around you, I feel very calm. You seem like a very calm person. I say, I'm just... You know, I'm just being myself. I don't say it, but I'm, I'm kind of surprised. <laughs> what, what have I done? You know, that's so special, and uh, yet they find us special. Uh, and I think uh, maybe the only thing that makes it special is that, you know, I have pretty good self acceptance. Not entirely. I mean, but I think maybe more so than a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that. That radiates. You know, it, it affects other people. And then everybody could. Everybody was shining like the sun, as Merton says. They are shining like the sun, but they don't know it. Right. Uh, and, if, and if we could see that in one another, then, you know, I wouldn't have to go out and and try to force change in the world. It'll come about, mm-hmm. in, uh, in God's good time. Um, Know, just by the uh, benign and, well, not just benign, but joyful and healthy influence that we can unconsciously have on one another. Yeah. Mm.
2: it's beautiful. That's really, really beautiful and powerful. Yeah, there's so many directions we could go with that. I do want to know, um, you said you were working another book of poetry.
0: Well, I finished. Yes, You're I finished another book. Well, okay. I finished one of those. Some more things just keep coming
2: (laughs) so there's a new one coming out though right
0: right Okay. called amounting to nothing
2: (laughs) perfect
0: and the first poem is mad monk's life ambition Mm. and it says sorry monk that I am I never amounted to nothing somebody must have put a jinx on me he said you'll never amount to nothing But amounting to nothing was my goal in monastic life. (laughs) That's a little more awkward than the actual poem. But, yeah, so you get the drift. Right, yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's great. So
0: how do you amount to nothing? You know, where's this magic mountain that you can climb and go down Mm -hmm. into total humility? And that's, of course, the the rule of St. Benedict, that the ladder to humility is... Not upward, but downward.
2: I believe there was a a monk of Snowmass. Yeah. That wrote a book. Something about the tales of the Magic Mountain um, or oh, Magic yeah. Monastery. Theophane. Yes.
0: He <laughs> was I, a character. I
2: love that little book.
0: Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's kind of a fantasy.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> when did is he still alive? No, he okay.
0: died. Uh, gosh, fifteen years ago, I think.
2: Did you knew him then?
0: Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, several times I ran into him.
2: Did the death of uh, Father Keating impact oh, yeah. you at all, did you know that
0: news, Yeah, that was about a month ago, I think, or six weeks, something like that. Of course, yeah, he's well known in the order. Um, so it was good, you know, to hear the death of, uh, blessed in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his faithful. Mm. That's from the Psalms. And, uh, you know, it's always a, there's a kind of a blessing in hearing it. He was ninety five years old. Yeah. Old yeah. enough to die. He but you know, he has he has, has done so much in the world and in the country. And, you know, with the centering prayer thing. And, mm-hmm. and his interaction with the Buddhists at that center out there in Aspen, Colorado, near mm-hmm. the monastery, uh, World Council of what is that? World Council of something. Not the churches, but uh, religions, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean, he, he's not, uh, he didn't write that much. But he certainly has had a broad influence in, yeah. a, in a more, you know, indirect way. But, uh, I mean, the Centering Prayer Movement is all over the country now.
2: Mm-hmm. And it seems to me a kind of um, uncovering of, you know, um, almost desert monastic prayer. You know, yeah. to go into the silences and to, yeah, yeah. to be... Well, we drew
0: from our tradition I
2: right.
0: made an application of it.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Are you still spending time with Emily?
0: Every day I read two or three of her poems, yeah.
2: You're not going to give that up, are you?
0: Well, <laughs> I, it makes me think. She mm. makes me think. Uh, sometimes I don't understand what she's saying... And then I go back the next day, and I still don't understand what she's saying. And maybe she doesn't understand what she's saying. Yeah. Um, and I, there's some, a few nuts I haven't broken yet. <laughs> <laughs> some, but I'm pretty good at breaking, breaking the nut uh, and hmm. getting the meat out of it. So, yeah, it's worth, it's worth pursuing. Still, I mean, one of these days, maybe I should go back and read her letters again. Because yeah. they're like poems.
2: Yeah, I'll have to send you the one I'm trying to reference about Eve. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, if I can uh, find that.
0: Yeah, she would get into these kind of biblical reflections. And, uh, she certainly had her own point of view about the things in the Bible. Uh, I guess somebody might probably, maybe that's why she didn't want to be published, that probably her peers, her, the religious people in her time, thought she was being blasphemed. Blasphemous or something
2: mm, yeah. in
0: some cases. But she was just being provocative and thinking for herself. Mm-hmm. She said, I don't know how people can live without thinking. She was a thinker.
2: She said that? She wrote that?
0: She said, she, she said that to uh, uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson when he, when he went to visit her. And she just kind of tosses off this state. "Why well, I don't know how people can live without thinking.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I I don't understand how people can live without praying, mm. and uh, you know life is uh, there's so much that, that life brings on down upon you that yeah. Uh, so she um, had uh, a lot to say in her, and some of those letters are very funny. The ones to her nieces, they're the young, funny. Her young nieces. Oh yeah, there's. <laughs> She sure, should sure. take a look at those again.
2: Yeah. So other than what people know of what your prayer life looks like in terms of the monastery and the rhythm and the order of that, would you mind sharing at all what your prayer life looks like apart from that? In terms of the more intimate times oh, of prayer? or
0: Well, I, I wake up about 40 minutes before the 3 o'clock bell goes off. Okay. When you're supposed to you know, head down to choir. For vigils, they're at three fifteen, and so I I usually sit up, and uh, of course I sleep outside. I've been sleeping outside for twenty seven years now, and uh, it's uh, wonderful to be outside because in a way I can pray. Well, you know, ideally I can pray anywhere. I, I I found it hard to pray at Starbucks this morning when you and I met up here in Chicago. <laughs>
2: it was a little loud in there.
0: <laughs> oh, boy, that was loud. Uh, so I um I will say the Jesus prayer. I go through the beats, mm-hmm. 108 beats, uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, have mercy on me. So by then, it's time to... Uh, get up and fold up my blankets and put away the mattress inside there and um, walk back to the monastery and get ready for vigils so and then of course vigils, that usually anywhere from oh 30 minutes to 40 minutes, something like that depends on what whether it's a feast day or a Sunday or not and after that, coffee and bread and peanut butter and then up to my room for uh, um, reading uh, scriptures start with, I, and um, then somewhere in that I'll read the, the, the uh, Emily Dickinson prayers. Okay. Emily Dickinson, two or three of them, four, and then uh, so it's quiet time. I, I don't, I don't meditate much at that time. But then comes law, Then after Mass, uh, Mass follows laws and then I'll go outside again. And sit for, usually anywhere from 40 to 30 to 40 minutes, depends on how long mass was to start with. And uh, by then I've had enough of words, you know, lots, mass, readings. <laughs> so uh, I just go wordless at that point. Mm. And uh, I'll, I'll think, sometimes uh, uh, there'll be a, like a poetic presence or a poetic moment. Uh, in that situation, and I leak it. I let it speak itself in, in a haiku, uh, you know, the, the three lines, you know, five solos, seven solos, five solos, and I do, don't do that every day, and I've been doing less of it lately for some reason, um, but it's a nice way of bringing things down to, to something definite, you know, just the spoken word. So that's pretty much, and then sometimes re, I agree. After noon it's nice, uh, noon is 2.15 in the afternoon, and it's only last ten minutes, and then there's about, I'd say, eight to twelve of the novices and monks will sit down, up, go up to the sanctuary area, and sit for at least fifteen minutes, maybe thirty minutes, and sometimes I do that, It's nice, hmm. to meditate with other people. Um, there's something about sitting in silence with other people, it makes something of a difference. So that's pretty much the way it is for me.
2: What do you think that difference is when you...
0: Oh, you know, I haven't studied it real carefully. I think there's a certain comfort in being with other people. Um, Although for me there's comfort in being with nature, Uh, Mm -hmm. it's a different kind of comfort though. And I don't pay attention, nobody's paying attention to anybody else, there's a big church and we're all kind of spread out. (laughs) Uh, But there's a kind of, well we're all interested in the same thing, you know, we're we're not alone in this kind of abiding with God. come to the monastery to live in mm-hmm. uh, abiding together with God in God I mean, you don't talk about that you I mean, to yourself it's just it's there and you uh, have a get a taste of it and then go off to your uh, rest of your activities for the, for the day or to your room or your computer or whatever you kind of do mm-hmm. uh, but it sort of it's kind of like a touchstone takes you back to what uh, is Fundamental and real in your life.
2: Yeah. So before we close, is there anything else that you'd like to share? You want to share about um, what you're doing at this conference? Up here, yeah, Yeah. it's
0: it's wonderful to be up here, Uh, especially because uh, here we are at Catholic Theological Union, and I graduated from Catholic Theological Union back in 1977. Hmm. You know, I, I came here in '75 and into 76 which was the coldest Chicago winter oh, was of it? that century I think oh, wow. that's when Lake Michigan froze over okay <laughs> and uh <laughs> then uh so man the place has changed With mm. this new building and it, I mean I knew there were great people here great potential and it sure is showing itself now it's grown and the modern buildings and so, uh, so it's good. There's kind of I'm coming full cycle somehow. I have maybe I am doing something to live up to the promise of, of my promise of being a graduate here. Mm. You know, when you graduate, you have some sense maybe of a, a promise in life. And uh, it didn't turn out quite the way I thought. I knew, for one thing, although I was working in theology, people ask me, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a writer. And I didn't know, I didn't understand what I meant by saying I wanted to be <laughs> a writer. And it didn't turn out to be a writer in theology. I, that was my field of systematic theology. Mm. But I haven't published systematic theology. I wrote a thesis on Pannenberg, Wolfhard Panenberg, the Lutheran theologian. Mm. I never wrote more than that. And, um, I got, you know, as time went by, I started writing poetry a little uh, more and more all the time. And then it was just recently I wrote this memoir, writing writing narration and continue writing. So I've been published, you know, more than I expected. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, so in a way I, I come with a, well, of course, Nobody, had, nobody else had expectations of me, I'm sure. But it, I'm sure they're happy to know that one of their graduate students uh, ha- hasn't, hasn't turned out to be all bad. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so how does that work? Because you entered the abbey. Yeah,
0: like so, well, somewhere. actually, uh, you know, they, they send people off, well, especially the priests. Uh, they'll send off to get uh, their theological education. Okay. I mean, when I was, you know, in the early days, we did all oh, the theological education was done in the monastery, and I took three years of theology in the and three years of philosophy in, in the monastery. Of course, it all moved at a slower pace because, you know, we got other parts of our life to take care of. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, so, like a lot of them went to Rome to study, and uh, and then a lot of them went to St. Meinrad's in uh, Benedictine Monastery in Indiana mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. get their uh, theology. I liked uh, the idea of going to Catholic, CTU, Catholic Theological Union. They had women students, and I've been living in a totally male environment. Yeah. And I thought, you know, there'd be a good balance to, to have you know, women around and women teachers. Yeah. And I was very impressed with Don Senior, who gave us a week's workshop on St. Matthew's Gospel at the monastery, and I was attracted by that. Uh, I mean, I could have gone to Rome, I could have gone to Paris, or perhaps uh, if I had asked to. I mean, the abbess, you know, was willing to send me off to someplace, and so this is what I picked. Yeah, it didn't quite turn out the way I expected. And I found out, gosh, I mean, stuff I already knew that I didn't need to re- learn over again. Um, but there were, th- there was kind of new things too. So I, I worked my way through, but you know, I, I think in, in, in the last analysis, my best education was at the monastery, mm. Yeah. Hm. although it was much more informal. Right. And diffuse and long, kind of long coming, long in the yeah. coming of it. <laughs>
2: well, and ongoing. It and ongoing, like yeah. continue.
0: Well, that's crucial. Yeah. I think if 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 your education leave, leaves you and, and and actually incites the desire to keep learning and to go on learning, is a successful education. Yeah. Some people say. Okay, I've finished my studies. I'm through with that, and they don't <laughs> go any further. Yeah, that's sad. Right, and that's not edu- That's not good education.
2: Mm-hmm. Definitely, and there's education in all aspects and avenues of vocations and life. And
0: not, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, get, well, that's the great advantage of Merton. He was always expanding his horizon mm-hmm. finding new areas of interest, mm-hmm. and, and and that was a a model. I mean, that was an example for me. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I'm, I don't expand nearly as much as he did, but I do expand.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. When can we expect your new book of poetry?
0: I think yeah. in spring. Okay. At first they said fall, but he, he, they said you get your endorsements in soon enough, and we might be on in the spring. So. Okay. Uh, it's out of Paraclete Press. Okay. Amounting Great. to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> There's kind of a Buddhist twist to that.
2: I love that title. Between that and then Useless Life and Praise of the Useless Life. (laughs) Great titles.
0: Christian Buddhist.
2: Yeah, yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so much. All right. You're very welcome. For joining us again. And Uh hopefully we'll have you on another time. Oh. I'll be seeing you in February. The
0: poor audience. (laughs)
2: Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversations about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website, connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.